It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello, I'm Kay Winnigal. Thanks for joining me on another edition of the Beyond Zero Science and Solutions Show. The show is broadcast via the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network, and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and the Science and Solutions Show are now available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. The Smart Energy Council recently held its annual conference online and there were a number of very interesting talks. Today I'm playing two talks, one from David Spratt who is the Research Director for Breakthrough, the National Centre for Climate Restoration. David co-authored Climate Code Red which in 2008 presented very valuable scientific evidence that the global warming crisis was worse than official reports and national governments had so far indicated. Twelve years later, I have to ask, has much changed? The second talk is by the Honourable Mark Butler, Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Both David and Mark have been previous guests on our show. Firstly, I'll play you the presentation that David Spratt gave, which really set the scene for the conference. It was part of the first session which was called Setting Out the Urgent Climate and Economic Pressures That Will Drive the Uptake of Smart Energy. David's presentation was titled Australia and the Region are Vulnerable and was such a powerful message that it should be shared with everyone. I think I should start by saying that in this COVID period, uh, we should start by reaffirming that the first duty of a government is to protect the people, their health, their safety and their well-being. Um, this requires the management of high-end risks such as nuclear and biological uh, weapons, pandemics, climate disruption, economic and uh, ecological collapse and so on, where the threat may be catastrophic. Uh, in managing such risks, COVID provides some alarming insights into this challenge. Last year, uh, the inaugural Global Health Security Index of Pandemic Preparedness found in their words, and I quote, severe weaknesses in countries' abilities to prevent, detect and respond to significant disease outbreaks with the global average national score just 40 out of 100. Remarkably, given what's happened since, the survey found that the USA was the most prepared nation and the UK the second most prepared. In other words, nations and experts believed they were prepared, but they weren't. Uh, and that par parallels the politics of climate disruption, as John has uh, talked about. The IPCC says that countries in the Southern Hemisphere subtropics, such as Australia, are projected to experience the largest, the largest impacts on economic growth due to climate change. We know that Australia is already a hot uh, and dry and the most vulnerable continent, and we've been warned about this for decades. Let me give you three examples. In 2009, the pioneer coral researcher Charlie Veron told the Royal Society in London that coral systems are healthy only when warming is less than half a degree Celsius. 
now with warming at about 1.1, 1.2, the Great Barrier Reef's extent has been reduced to one-fifth, one-fifth of its area 50 years ago. Um, ocean heat waves are causing severe coral bleaching, which will occur about once every three years, but corals take more than a decade to recover. So this effectively is a death cycle for the reef and as an ecosystem it's likely to be gone by 2030. Likewise with bushfires after the terrible 2016 Tasmanian World Heritage bushfires the fire ecologist David Bowman declared this is system collapse and seven years earlier just after Black Saturday here in Victoria Professor David Caroli told the European conference, and I quote again, we are unleashing hell on Australia, unquote, with catastrophic fires ravaging the landscape. Yet last year, the federal government refused to meet with senior retired firefighters who were ringing the alarm bells. And for 18 months, a national government emergency plan to respond to the increasing dire effects of fires and other natural disasters lay gathering dust. There's also been a, long, a 10% long-term drying trend in Australia's southeast. 2019 was the hottest and the driest uh, on record in Australia. New South Wales experienced the driest soil conditions on record, with farms devoid of stock, temperatures too hot for cattle to breed, and coastal rivers not flowing. The unprecedented 2019-20 bushfire season firestorm killed or displaced 3 billion animals and 85,000 square kilometres of forest was lost. Those forest ecologies, like the Barrier Reef, may now also be in a death cycle. Climate and fire conditions uh, similar to last summer are likely to occur more often than the time it takes uh, for the forest to recover. And Professor Ross Garno and his work for the uh, Labor government warned of the Murray-Darling Basin's likely fate more than a decade ago. On, he said on the current high emissions trajectory, which we're still on, irrigated agricultural output in the basin would halve by 2050 and it would end, end by 2100. At the same time, there would be a 40% drop in pasture productivity in southeastern Australia. These are, these are dramatic uh, stories, and we've been warned for a decade. Most of Australia can expect extreme temperatures of more than 50 degrees by century's end. Just turning now to the region, climate disruption starts with growing food and water insecurity, and then social upheaval follows. Think of Syria. The Paris goal is to hold warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees, but the World Meteorological Organization warms warns that we're on a path of three to five degrees with the current commitments. At four degrees of warming, annual rainfall in southern Australia falls by half, particularly in winter and spring. The Australian wheat industry is highly sensitive to climatic changes. In Garno's hot dry scenario, wheat yields fall to zero in many regions. And if we stand back and look at, at talk of two degrees, I think we need to understand that global average warming of two degrees implies an average of three degrees of warming over land, four to five degrees in the regions that are drying, 
five to six degrees in summer average temperatures in dry regions and six to eight degrees hotter for individual days during, hot, hot, during heat waves in dry regions such as Australia. We live in the most vulnerable region of the world where the climate impacts at three degrees of warming will be eye-watering on Australia's trading partners, on forced population displacement and on state breakdown. Because we're now heading towards three to five degrees, I thought I'd give a little snapshot of a three degree world. At three degrees, aridification emerges over more than 30% of the world's land. Desertification is worse in the Southern Mediterranean, in West Asia, the Middle East, and we're seeing all this now, and in inland Australia, which we're also witnessing. Uh, deadly heat conditions persist for more than 100 days per year in the Middle East and South Asia. Heat and desertification would make some poorer nations and regions unviable. Together with rising sea levels, this could contribute to the um, displacement of perhaps a billion people. At three degrees, water availability decreases sharply in the most affected regions at lower uh, latitudes, uh, especially the dry tropics, where agriculture may become non-viable. At three degrees, Food production is very likely to be inadequate to feed the global population due to a number of factors, including a one-fifth decline in crop yields, a decline in the nutrition content of crops, a catastrophic decline in insect populations, monsoon failure and water shortages. And due to sea level rises, the, low, uh, the, the lower reaches of those really important agricultural rivers such as the Mekong, Ganges and Nile would be inundated. So this is a dramatic story for the, for the sort of uh, climate that we are currently heading for on current commitments. According to the Global Challenges Foundation's risk report from 2018, they say that even at two degrees of warming, more than a billion, one billion people may need to be relocated due to sea level rise. And they say, and I quote again, the scale of destruction is beyond our capacity to model in high-end scenarios with a high likelihood of human civilization coming to an end, unquote. So we should have no doubt that three degrees of more warming will be catastrophic uh, in terms of the capacity of societies to govern themselves, let alone peacefully coexist. So let me just turn briefly to the really sharp dilemma, and I'll be as brief as I can and as brutal as necessary, and it's as follows. First, at the current level of warming of 1.2 degrees, we have passed significant tipping points in planetary systems. These are critical thresholds that result in step changes in, in the climate system that are irreversible on human timescales. They include the Arctic sea ice and ecosystems, coral reefs, and the West Antarctic ice sheet. Uh, in a recent study, scientists warned that other tipping points could be triggered at low levels of warming in the range of 1.5 to 2. Uh, and they notice, for example, that the permafrost is starting to irreversibly thaw and release carbon dioxide and methane. Secondly, scientists uh, describe what they call a hothouse Earth scenario in which the system feedbacks and the interactions drive the Earth's climate to a point of no return uh, so that further warming becomes self-sustaining. Uh, this threshold could exist as low as two degrees, possibly lower. Thirdly, the world will reach, this is clear, the world will reach 1.5 degrees around 2030, regardless of the mitigation path in the next few years. And at the moment, we will hit two degrees before mid-century. 
before mid-century on the current path. To have any chance of staying below two degrees, which is itself far from safe, global emissions would need to cut in half in the next 10 years and much more in the high emitting countries like Australia. Those decarbonisation rates alone of 5 to 10% of the total economy every year for the next 10 years are in unprecedented in economic history and reveal a climate emergency requires unprecedented action. Fifth, a strong argument can be made that the high-end risks mean that there is no safe carbon budget at all for the two-degree target. If you're risk-averse, there is no budget left. So in other words, the idea of emissions not reaching zero till 2050 may be a recipe for disaster if it encourages procrastination over the next decade. Last November in the journal Nature, uh, leading scientists, including Australia's Will Stephan, wrote, we are in a climate emergency. This is an existential risk to civilization." in their own words. Can we, as we've done in response to COVID, act on the climate, recognising it is too, is an emergency. Can I just finish with uh, Jared Diamond in his recent book, Upheaval, How Nations Cope with Crisis and Change. Jared Diamond concludes that the key predictors of success when he looked at, at nations around the world over the last 200 years facing crises were four things, and I'll quote him. One, acknowledgement rather than denial of a crisis reality. Two, acceptance of responsibility to take action. Three, honest self-appraisal. And four, the presence or absence of a shared national identity which can help a nation recognise shared self-interest and unite to overcome a crisis. So the question is whether we have the capacity to acknowledge rather than deny the reality of the climate crisis as it exists in its full existential form and act accordingly. David gave us some very sobering temperature predictions, didn't he? We are on a path to two to five degrees Celsius warming, and it looks like we'll reach one and a half degrees by 2030, no matter what we do in the meantime. And we will reach two degrees Celsius warming before 2050. That doesn't bode well for us or our food production. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to recent talks from the Smart Energy Council conference given by David Spratt and Mark Butler. And now here is Mark Butler, whose presentation title was A Question of Political Will. Listen for his international and national observations. I thought I'd start just by um, trying to set the scene from a political perspective about quite what the pandemic has done to the Australian political system. It has, I think, as everyone knows, uh, really stripped bare some of the deep problems that were already starting to become visible in our economy and our society, but have been laid bare by the effects of the pandemic. The degree to which we really have run down our sovereign or domestic manufacturing capability to the lowest level it's been since World War II. Uh, and as supply lines have become disrupted by the pandemic, I think we've shown just, just how counterproductive that has been. And I think it's also stripped bare uh, and shown everyone the degree of job insecurity that Australian workers have. I mean, one in three workers in Australia at the beginning of a pandemic found that they had no paid sick leave entitlements. Many of those workers working on the front line, keeping us safe in the health sector, in the aged care sector, in cleaning, in childcare, areas where workers are among the lowest paid in the community. But it really also has brought out some, some real good, uh, really shown 
our strengths as a society, our extraordinary public health system, our great researchers who are at the forefront of uh, the quest to find a vaccine uh, for this virus. Some real strengths in our, in our sector, uh, in our country. And I think it also allowed us to rediscover some elements of our political system and our national dialogue that frankly have been lacking for a decade or more, particularly in Canberra and in the national scene. Firstly, the importance of consensus, particularly when the country is facing a crisis and we're facing a number of crises right now, the importance of reaching across the aisle, the importance of recognising that the political parties do have a role in maintaining a contest of ideas and in oppositions holding governments to account, but there is an important role for consensus and bipartisanship. Uh, and I think that's been an important lesson for particularly those of us who work in Canberra from time to time. The pandemic has also reminded us of the importance of the scientific method, the scientific endeavour, and listening to expert and scientific advice. And we've got such a wonderful tradition of public health science in this country, going back to Flory and the discovery of penicillin, but really a number of uh, uh, Nobel Prize winners in the area of medicine, some of the leading public health academics in the world, uh, again, finding a voice in this fight against the pandemic. But in the area that we're talking about today, uh, we really have denigrated, not we, those of us on this conference, but as a country, too many politicians, too many leaders in the media, and frankly, some in business too, have denigrated the important role of climate scientists. And I think uh, there's a real question over whether, gonna, whether we're going to be able to translate that rediscovery of the importance of science and expert advice into the other crisis that this country faces, which is the profound challenge of climate change. The, the really important and compelling thing about this pandemic globally as well is the degree to which it has smashed the energy sector, particularly the traditional energy sector. Uh, and although uh, renewable energy has also obviously been impacted by this, the pandemic and the economic consequences of the pandemic have really exposed the risk that is inherent in assets that are highly dependent upon commodity prices. And that is particularly uh, true of fossil fuel-based energy assets. Uh, the International Energy Agency reminds us that really the sector that is holding the show afloat is the renewable energy sector across the globe. And uh, it's important to to discuss openly what that is going to mean for the future of the global economy as well as ours. So what we confront now uh, in Australia, as we found out last week, uh, is a situation where we were in the deepest recession since 1931. Uh, and as a result, I think of a number of decisions that have been taken to withdraw uh, a series of economic supports like JobKeeper, or at least not fully withdraw them, but, but wind them back at the end of this month, JobKeeper, JobSeeker, uh, range of industrial relations protections, it threatens to be a much deeper and a longer recession than it otherwise would have been. We also find ourselves uh, very much in uh, the critical period uh, of a response to climate. We know from all of the science here in Australia, from our key scientific agencies like the Bureau, like SARO, the Australian Academy and others, but also their global equivalents, that that really this is, we keep saying this, but this is the critical decade. I mean, if we can't make very serious reductions in global emissions and get ourselves on a clear pathway to net zero emissions, uh, then we are going to have failed in meeting the objectives set out in the Paris Agreement. 
So the question is whether there is the political will uh, in Canberra and beyond to craft an economic recovery pathway out of this deep, deep recession that we find ourselves in, which threatens to last for quite a considerable period, that also not only gets us out of the recession, but makes very real inroads in the fight against climate change. I'll start with the optimism. Uh, and that is, I think, having been in this portfolio for quite a number of years now, there is an extraordinary level of consensus beyond that building at the top of the hill in Canberra. There really is a level of consensus I've never seen uh, in, this, uh, in this field. Uh, there's firstly a consensus among business groups and, and many others, which I'll come to, uh, that we must get on the path to net, to, the, to net zero emissions by the middle of the century. Uh, the Business Council says it, the, the Australian Industry Group says it, pretty much every other major group says it. Only in the last couple of weeks, the National Farmers Federation said it as well, which is a very significant shift over the last several years in that organisation under the leadership of Fiona. In no small part, I suspect, to the, the efforts of groups like Farmers for Climate Action. Investors and lenders uh, from small investors right up to the biggest, like BlackRock, have made it very clear that they will not be investing uh, in, in assets that are, that are climate risks. Um, the, the degree to which and the speed with which the Task Force, task force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Guidelines are percolated through the financial system is, is frankly just jaw-dropping uh, and I think has profoundly changed the way in which company directors and boards now regard their business plans vis-a-vis -vis climate. Regulators, both in the energy sector and general finance regulators like APRA, ASIC, the Reserve Bank and many others, have now made it very clear what they expect of business and investors and lenders. Uh, and last of all, but certainly not least, perhaps most importantly, consumers are still very clear that they want their country to continue moving more quickly and more quickly down the pathway of clean energy. Uh, I noticed that when I was elected to the parliament in 2007 in the Kevin 07 election, there were 7,400 households with rooftop solar uh, on their roofs, probably an average size of one and a half kilowatts, I suspect. There's now 2.2 million, uh, by far the most successful industry in the world in terms of rooftop solar installations. Uh, and those installation rates keep getting bigger and faster every year. Uh, also, businesses, increasingly in spite of the fact that there's no national energy policy, are looking for corporate PPAs that allow them to present to their customers that they are putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, and you know all of the companies that have moved to a 100% clean energy basis for their, their energy needs as well. I think one of the areas where um, it, there's still a question mark over optimism or pessimism is we're confronting a, a period of some months ahead of us where the international scene uh, will go down one of two pathways. Uh, every US presidential election is an important election, we know that, but I, I'm not sure there's been a more important election in recent decades than the one we'll see on November 3rd. Uh, the Biden platform is the most ambitious platform the Democrats have ever taken to an election, including under Obama and Clinton, Hillary Clinton that is, on climate. And if Biden is elected, not only will you see America uh, go down the pathway of a very rapid transition to zero emissions energy by the middle of the next decade, but also starting to introduce carbon border tariffs, which along with the work of the EU, well, I think will transform 
the level of international pressure on countries like Australia that are seen as laggards on climate action, and that will profoundly change things. What we'll also see is the finalisation of the 14th five-year plan in China. And as people probably are aware, there's been a bit of an arm wrestle within China about uh, what the response to, to, first of all, the economic impacts of the trade war with the US should be, but also the economic impacts of the global pandemic recession should be, and whether that involves the more typical sort of reflexive response back to coal-fired power, or whether they'll double down on seeking to be the global leader in clean energy, both in the energy sector, but also in the transport sector as well. These two events will have profound implications for the global economy, the global fight against climate, but also profound implications for the level of pressure on an economy like Australia, our closest ally and our largest trading partner, obviously. Um, obviously, there is um, still significant cause for pessimism because in spite of that extraordinary level of consensus in the community, in the business sector and among regulators, lenders and investors, there is still um, a great degree of reluctance uh, among uh, members of the Commonwealth Government. They're still resisting a commitment to net zero emissions in spite of the fact that every state government, Liberal and Labor alike, is signed up to it. They're resisting any post-2030 commitment. Uh, they're resisting any attempt by the UN or, or others to increase their inadequate 2030 targets of 26% by 2030. And they're persisting with this idea that Kyoto carryover credits, which don't really exist as a matter of international law, can be used to substitute for any serious policy at a domestic level. I hope Australian politicians are as aware as Mark Butler is about the carbon border tariffs being proposed by the European Commission and the US if there is a change in presidency. Just to explain, a carbon border tax, also known as a border carbon adjustment, imposes a fee on any product imported from a country without a carbon pricing plan, like Australia. There are three major ways that they can reduce carbon emissions. First, these tax adjustments could solve the problem of carbon leakage when carbon-intensive industries such as heavy manufacturing move to countries that don't re regulate carbon emissions. Second, they might help countries that want to lead on climate policy use their market power against those that don't. Some observers hope that such taxes would encourage more countries to participate in global climate agreements. Third, border adjustments can affect internal climate discussions. In principle, they level the playing field between companies in countries with climate policies and those elsewhere. So, I hope you've enjoyed the show today, and if you'd like more information, you can go to the Smart Energy Council website. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, remotely, and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover the airtime costs, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.